0: Morning everyone. It's uh, just fantastic to be with you. Um, So uh, we're going to work through the rest of our uh, chapter here, chapter 5, in our series, Kingdom Culture. So far, to catch you up in chapter 5, we've seen what it looks like to become a Christian. Uh, Blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit. The, The truth that we saw a few weeks ago was that we have to Uh, see our sin, repent from our sin, be poor in spirit, to thirst and hunger for righteousness, and then to have Jesus in our lives. We talked earlier in the chapter about how to become a Christian. Then we talked about being salt and light and what it looks like to be a Christian in the world that enters into the needs of the world and acts as a, a light of truth and hope that shines onto the world. And we saw that we are to be a city on a hill that's set apart, that's to be different, that's to be a counterculture to the world in which we live. We are to be, as a church, as a group of Christians, we are to be a city inside of a city, a neighborhood inside of a neighborhood, a community within a community. And uh, now, our passage for the rest of today and the rest of the chapter explores what it looks like for us to live out that countercultural obedience to King Jesus, So we are a counterculture, but like most countercultures, when you hear that term, you might think of a subgroup or a group of people who have the same interests and support one another. The difference between a normal counterculture or a subculture within our world today and the church is that we are a counterculture, but we exist for the common good. Instead of the protection of ourselves or our community or our tribe, we take the love that God has given us and we take it out to other people. And because of that, we are a counterculture that exists for the good of Anaheim, for the good of Brea, for the good of North Orange County and L.A. County and through this area of the world as well. We are a counterculture for the common good. Uh, isn't this needed in our time today? My wife went to the grocery store yesterday. She bought the last piece of meat at Vons. We're having bison burgers tonight, apparently. Um, and she had to walk around two people who were being drugged out of Vons or uh, Albertsons or whatever store it was uh, because they bought too many uh, uh, rolls of something. I don't know. Uh, whatever it is, like we, need to, uh, we need a world today where we have the ability to deal with conflict we have other issues even mentioned in the chapter, like uh, sexuality, or um, since there's kids in the room, for the remainder of the sermon, we can just call those relationships. Um, so we, we need a counterculture for the common good, because our world today is very tribal, it's very protective. Our, our, uh, our selfishness takes over in the midst of a pandemic, and so isn't, uh, the point I'm trying to make is, isn't it true that we need uh, Christians, that we need a world even, where we live for the common good? And Jesus talks about these different issues where we work through the common good. And so we're going to see the path to countercultural obedience uh, and what it requires. The path to countercultural obedience requires, we'll see in our passage, knowing Jesus' standard for obedience, seeing the reality of obedience, and having the power for obedience. In essence, seeing the standard for obedience in this chapter is that Jesus sets a high standard for obedience The reality of obedience is that you will never do it. And the power for obedience is that through Jesus, we can have enough life change, enough virtue, enough goodness in our hearts to then actually change our lives and obey God in these areas. So the the standard is high. The reality is you'll never do it. And the power for obedience is that through Jesus, you can. And then we'll see, as I mentioned, a few issues where Jesus walks us through different hot topics in our culture, even today, Uh, in ways that we can obey God. So let's start, let's dig in. The standard for obedience. Jesus intentionally sets a high moral standard for the kingdom of God. He clearly is defining a kind of adherence to the law, the Old Testament law, that no one had ever heard before. And you'll see in our passage, he says, um, I have not come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill the law. And then as he works through the passage, he says, you've heard it said, in the Ten Commandments, but I say to you. And if you even read in your Bibles in verses 21 and 22, we see uh, him say, You've heard it said, uh, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother, Raka is answerable to the court, And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. So, in the outset of his uh, sermon, this section of the sermon, Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill it. And then his definition of the law is expanded. It's a higher standard than anyone had ever heard before. Jesus, in essence, is saying, if you think that because you've never murdered someone, that you don't raka someone, that you don't call someone fool, then you are fooling yourself. And... The word fool here means to be so blind to the decisions that you're making that you're not aware of the havoc that you're wreaking in your life. And then an interesting part of the passage here, it says, if you call someone raka, well, my curiosity is why didn't they translate raka into English in the passage? And it's partially because it loses its effect once you translate it into English because the word raka means that someone is nothing or is empty, is a non-entity, or a non-human. It's not an insult. It's not just a name that you would call someone. Calling someone raka is an attitude. Partially what we see from Jesus here is that he's not just concerned about our behavior. He's concerned about the heart. And this might be obvious to you as you, believe, as you read the passage, and even as you live as a Christian, but it's important just to stop and notice that he's saying, here's what the Ten Commandments says, but I care about your heart and your love for the Lord and your desire to follow through with that, to honor God with your life, and so therefore he's saying that the real obedience to the law, do not murder, is that you should not call someone fool, you should not look at someone and say, you are a non-entity, you are a non-human, you are unimportant, and. You might have observed also that Jesus was angry at people in his life. He turned over tables. He confronted people. He was a, a frustrated character at different people, especially towards religious leaders. But Jesus never called them raka. Jesus never looked at someone and said, You are a non entity. But if we can do some application here on a personal level, isn't it true that when you get angry at people, when you have road rage, when you look at somebody else with contempt, that in our hearts we are saying, you are a fool, you are not a non-entity, you have lacked humanness and value in my eyes, just because you cut me off in traffic. You know, this week I had an interesting um, happenstance where I set my shoes out on my front porch to dry because I walked my dog and they got wet and muddy and so I left them out. And they were brand new sneakers, so I spent like some money on them and I was uh, grateful to have some new running shoes And then uh, somebody porch pirated me. They ran up to my front porch. They opened the gate. They ran in past all the different things that we have on our front porch. And they stole my sneakers. And my wife was feeding our son Soren. And out the window, she saw somebody running away with my sneakers. And I also have a camera up on my front porch. And so I immediately went on the app to see if somebody jumped onto our front porch. And uh, and there he was on his bicycle, running up, grabbing my bright red running shoes, and then bicycling away. And right about the time my wife was mourning the fact that my new running shoes were gone and maybe was about to say, I told you so, you shouldn't set things out on the front porch, Uh, I immediately grabbed my keys and just ran to the garage and uh, proceeded to run the guy down with my car. So about six blocks later, and about, uh, I'd say about 10 minutes worth of driving, I found a guy uh, with a handful of other things that he might have collected from my neighborhood and two bright red running shoes held under the front of his bicycle. And I started honking at him and, you know, when you're uh, in conflict with someone, you, you, you go through what you're going to say in your head. And so the whole time while I was driving around my neighborhood in the pouring rain, uh, trying to find somebody riding their bicycle with some new running shoes on, um, I was thinking, I'm going to say this. And then he's going to say this. And then I'm going to be like, listen here, pal. Those are my running shoes. And anyways, what really happened is that I honked at the guy. And then uh, in honking at him, he got scared. And then he ran into a parked car. I felt bad at that particular moment. And then uh, I rolled down my window and I was trying to sound scary because, you know, I don't have um, a scary voice, but I said, hey man, those are my shoes, I want them back. And then he uh, immediately was scared that I was yelling at him and then he threw the shoes at my car and, uh, and, and you know, the impressive part was that I only had the window rolled down about uh, 10 inches, but the guy threw my shoes from his bicycle that was like half fallen down. And he made those shoes right into my car. And I thought, you know what? You should, you should play basketball. This is <laughs> some real skill here. Um, in, the, in the process of confronting someone in this particular instance, I, of course, was thinking, what kind of jerk would do this? What kind of person wouldn't take my uh, feelings into account? But uh, in looking the person in the eye and, then, and looking at his face once I scared him with my car and uh, started yelling at him, I think... Uh, you realize what it looks like to look into the eyes of a human and to to call them foolish, to call them names. And uh, I think inside of all of our hearts we have some element of that component where we say there are certain people in the world who I think are fools, who I think are raka, who are less than me because they are, in a sense, non-entities, either whether it's because they disagree with something I believe or because they commit an action that I think is bad for society. We all have that heart of raka and foolishness uh, and and a a desire to see ourselves as better than other people inside of all of us. The point is That Jesus says, you are committing murder. You are gravely sinning when you do that. He sets a high standard for obedience. Secondly, Jesus um, gives us a look into what it looks like to obey the law. Basically, that you'll never do it. In verse 18, it says, For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets these things highly is great in the kingdom. And if you set them low, then you're low in the kingdom. And in verse 20, he says this. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, you can imagine some people hearing Jesus talking here. He, they would be thinking, okay, what are the new standards for Jesus' kingdom? And he says... Nothing is changing. Nothing is truly changing about what God thinks about his law and the moral standards of obeying God. And then he says, But unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will not enter my kingdom. Everyone there in the day would have heard that to say, I'm not in. I'm certainly rejected by God. Just by that very statement No one's righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees. The Pharisees had 635 laws that they created as uh, religious scholars, as a community, because their whole goal was to perfectly obey the law so that they could gain their righteousness before God by their religious duty. There's a level of privilege that even allows you to spend your time only obeying the religious law. There's a, there's a component to it that's communal where they banded together to say, we are going to be the most righteous of all the people in God's kingdom. And then Jesus has the austerity to say, if you can beat them and surpass them, then you might have a chance at entering my kingdom. And there might have been a few people who because they loved Jesus were inspired to think, I can be righteous, I think I can do it. And maybe they were remembering all of the Old Testament and thinking, if I just remember what it was like to be David, and if I can just beat David, and if I can remember what Moses was like and then beat Moses, and if I can remember Abraham then beat Abraham, then maybe I can be righteous. Maybe there was one or two foolish people to think, I think I can do it. I'm the one who can obey better than the Pharisees. By the end of the passage, you'll notice in verse 48, Jesus sums up the section by saying, Oh, by the way, you should be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In the end, Jesus is intentionally setting a high standard for us because we cannot obey God in this level. It's meant to make us feel a certain level of helplessness to say, Jesus, I think I'm going to need your help. I think I'm going to need your intervention. Something's going to have to change for me to have this kind of righteousness in my life. Can I just pause and say, some of you have a Christian background that never had intervention with your need for righteousness. I sense that some people had a Christian background where there was a pressure to be perfect. There was a pressure to get the right level of success or even uh, grades or to put up appearances and seem like you're the perfect child and then the perfect young adult and now the perfect adult. I understand that there are some churches and even some, uh, maybe it's just the default mode of our sin where we think, if I can just pretend And if I can just try and secretly perform as much as I can to obey and honor God, then maybe I'll have the righteousness come into my life at some point. If I just keep acting like I'm good and then trying my best on my own to honor God's word, then maybe I can do it. All that results in is pretending and performing but what it actually does is it blocks out our need for Jesus as Savior and that's the point that Jesus is making and so if you're here this morning uh, via live stream and you're thinking I do spend a lot of my Christian life pretending and I do spend a lot of my Christian life performing as if the only way for me to feel secure in my faith or to be loved by God is if I did the right deeds this week then you're meant to have some level of despair in your heart when you read these passages because your righteousness has not surpassed that of the Pharisees, no matter how much you pretend. And now we go to our third point, which is that there is a power for obedience. There is a grace-based obedience because we, once we let go of our ability to honor God and earn righteousness on our own, when we put our faith in Christ, when we have our sins washed away because of his death on the cross, when we have his righteousness given to us because of the role reversal that we have with Jesus where we are sinners, he is a perfect, and then he gives us his righteousness and he takes away our sin. When that happens and you're a Christian, now you have the power inside you to honor God with your life in the way that God designs. And so we're going to talk for the remainder of our sermon here about the power for obedience. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you can change, you can grow in your faith, and you can obey God's will for your life. I have been recently reading a series of books um, about uh, a fantasy world and a young man named Austin. There's a Christian author who has been writing these books and has been describing a young man who works in the entertainment industry in Hollywood, and then suddenly this young man named Austin, in the midst of his striving to gain fame and to gain popularity and to gain success in the entertainment industry, finds himself able to travel between the real world through portals to a fantasy world. And uh, at first, before uh, uh, while he doesn't even understand how to control this power, magical power that exists in his life, um, he will suddenly be transported in walking through a doorway from the real world to a world of kings and knights and ogres and wizards and warlocks. When Austin travels to the fantasy world, he finds out that the fantasy world is at threat of defeat uh, with the evil wizard threatening to overthrow the prosperity of the people in that land, very Lord of the Rings-esque forces of evil ogres, evil uh, people taking over the world of light and the people who serve under a good king. And the good king has immense power, um, but he is unable to, at uh, current point in the first uh, few books, to take over the darkness of the evil wizard. But uh, Austin finds himself in a place where he can play a role in fighting off the wizard. So, um, in his attempt to defeat the evil wizard through a course of events of his ability to travel between the real world, what he finds out is that the only way for the evil wizard to take over the entire kingdom is to actually travel into the real world as well. And so, what Austin finds out is that the evil that exists in the fantasy world also exists in the real world. At one point in time, uh, Austin's ability to defeat the evil wizard is taken away from him because he's confused as to what world he lives in. And so he thinks he's in the fantasy world when he's really in the real world and vice versa. The reason I tell you this story is because um, the climax to the story only happens when the good king, with all of his magical powers, gives his life for Austin, this young man. And in kind of an Obi-Wan Kenobi fashion Um, The good king imbues Austin with his mentality, with his mind. The good king can live after his death inside the mind of Austin. And then suddenly, with Austin's everyday average person trying to do good, imbued with the righteousness, the courage, and the power and the equipment of the king, now the two of them uh, can defeat evil. With Austin's ability to travel between the uh, heavenly world, in a sense, and the real world, imbued with uh, the king's power, now he can defeat evil. And then in different times where Austin has to travel into the fantasy world and defeat an ogre, suddenly when he's uh, at loss of what to do, he finds a, a sword on his hip that the king has placed there, and then he can fight off some evil. And right about the time Austin's about to get stabbed in the chest by some wizard uh, lightning bolt thing, it's a fantasy story after all, Um, Austin finds that the king has placed a shield in his arm and he's able to do it. Right about the time Austin thinks that he cannot muster up the courage to do good, he can sense the king overtaking his mind, giving him the courage to do good. That is true with the Christian life as well because Christ died for us because the king died and because we have the spirit inside of us. Sometimes we lack courage. Sometimes we don't have power to change the circumstances in our lives today but we live as empowered people because of the gospel, because of the grace that's been shown on us and therefore the reason I tell you this story that I've been reading is because that's just how we live as Christians that because the king died That we have power to address evil, to address darkness, to have hope in the midst of hopelessness. In verse 17, we see uh, that Jesus says, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill these standards of the law. You know, there's only one way to fulfill a law. I'm sorry, there's two ways to fulfill a law, um, but only one way that we could try to do them. There's two ways to fulfill the law. One, that you keep the law, you perfectly obey all of God's biblical standards, you keep the law. Or secondly, you pay a penalty for breaking the law. You keep the law or you pay the penalty for the law. And Jesus fulfills the law in exactly both of those circumstances. Jesus obeyed God's law perfectly in his life. And on the cross, he paid that penalty for us. Those two things are very important because I think there's a misconception in a lot of our faith. It's it's as if sometimes we think that um, Jesus took the penalty for our sin, but then once we become Christians, then we have to just try really hard to earn God's favor. Do you feel that way sometimes in your life? That, sure, I understand that I put my faith in Christ and that's how I become a Christian, but once I'm a Christian... I need to work really hard to do my morning devotionals, to not curse when I stub my toe, to not gossip when I have something really juicy that I want to share with somebody else, to not see someone else as evil. Um, Do you have that sense that, that we think, sure, salvation is by faith, but then the Christian life is by works. But Jesus, he paid the penalty for the law. On the cross, he died for your sins. He wiped away your record. When you become a Christian and you put your faith in him, all of your sins are wiped away. But it's not just that. If that's all he had done, then you would need to be perfect once you became a Christian. But Jesus also obeyed the law on your behalf. So Jesus took away your sin uh, and then when you become a Christian, he gives you his righteousness to live every single day. And now it's our job to live with Jesus, to relate to Jesus, to worship Jesus for what he's done for us, to live with that reality so that it causes righteousness in our lives. So the funny thing is, in a sense, Jesus says, your righteousness needs to surpass that of the Pharisees. But the good news of Christ is, our righteousness actually could surpass that of the Pharisees in our hearts. Because religious obedience never changes the heart. But the gospel can change our hearts because he loves us, because he forgave us, because of what he's done on our behalf. And so in a sense, we might surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees in the sense that our heart actually jumps for joy at obeying God, at honoring God, at living with God. That's the good news of what we could call, instead of religious obedience, gospel goodness. Martin Luther has this great quote uh, that reminds me of the way that we ought to be overwhelmed with what Jesus has done for us so that it changes our lives. And he writes this. He says, Uh, The gospel is powerful because he he was sold to buy us back. He was captive to deliver us. He was condemned to absolve us. He was made a curse for our blessing, a sin offering for our righteousness. He died for our life so that by him, and you can tell John Calvin in writing this is potentially getting excited and I, I hope your heart jumps for joy at these truths as well. That's so that by him, fury is made gentle, wrath appeased, darkness turned to light, fear reassured, despisal despised, debt cancelled, labor lightened, saddened made merry, misfortune made fortunate, war warred against, vengeance avenged, torment tormented, damnation damned, death dead, mortality made immortal, in short, mercy in Jesus has swallowed up all misery and goodness, all misfortune. The truth of the gospel is that if your heart lacks the heart for obedience, to honor God with your deeds, to see people as human, or to even walk through the rest of our passage in Matthew five and love God and love people and then obey His commands and His plan for your life, then my my message to you, the gospel's message to you, is to see what Jesus has done for you. See that. As Calvin writes, that mercy has swallowed up misery, that death is dead, that your future is secure in him. You have a life in Jesus, and because of that life inside of us that wells up with worship for Jesus and love for Jesus and obedience to Jesus, now your life can be changed. That's gospel goodness. You can imagine Jesus giving this sermon. He's got Pharisees over here. He's got Followers over here, he's got a few skeptics in the back. What he's trying to communicate to all these different people is there's two ways to live. Not just good and disobedient, but religious people who try and use religion to bend God's arm to say, you have to answer my prayers, I'm obedient. You have to accept me, I'm obedient. And then a bunch of people who have said, my righteousness will never surpass that of the Pharisees. I need a savior to give me righteousness, and that's the good news of Christ. So I just want to close with this. Gospel goodness means that we look at all of the different things in this passage and we see ourselves list, uh, listing all three of the points of this sermon. Here is the standard for obedience. Here's the reality for obedience. And here's the power for obedience. And I'll just rattle through them very quickly. There's passages here about hostility and conflict, like not calling your brother or your sister Raqqa. Or in verse 23 and 24, it says, first go and be reconciled to someone before you start giving things at the altar and worshiping God. But go and be reconciled. In verse 38 and 39, it says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. Um, But I tell you, uh, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them them your other cheek. Which, of course, is a way to say, um, the cheek is meant to be a place where you're kissed. And so if someone slaps your cheek, then in turning the other cheek, you are leaving yourself open to reconciliation. You're leaving yourself still open to a relationship once the uh, conflict is resolved. That's what turning the other cheek means. So the standard, be reconciled. Turn the other cheek. The reality, we don't do that. (laughs) The power of obedience here might remind you uh, of the gospel in, in Philippians 2.7, that Jesus, in being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. When we call someone raka, we're saying, you are a nothing. And then Jesus made himself nothing, on our behalf. The power for obedience in conflict resolution in your life is to say, I'll never look at someone and say they are uh, void of worth because I've been valued. I've been made somebody because Jesus was made nothing. On the cross, he became nothing for my sake so that I can be someone with God for all of eternity. That motivates my heart to say every human life has value and it shapes the way I deal with conflict. Um, when you forgive someone and when you go and be reconciled to someone, there's always an emptying of yourself. There's always something that you sacrifice and that you give up to yourself every time you forgive. You're taking the burden of a hurt and you're saying, I'm going to put this down. I'm, I'm going to give up the right to get even. And the power for obedience here is to say, because he sacrificed himself for me, I can make the sacrifice of forgiveness for you because he forgave me of my sins. I now know what it looks like to forgive you of your sins against me and for us to be reconciled. Because he turned the other cheek and left the ability for me to have a a, a reconciled relationship with him, I can turn the other cheek and keep a relationship open with you. The power for obedience in sexual integrity is listed in the passage with divorce and speech integrity. I'm simply, for this morning, as we march through the series, and even, I'm, I'm actually kind of just giving, I'm holding up a baton here for us that I'm now handing to Pastor Ethan for next week because he's gonna carry this same theme for us in the passage through into chapter six. Gospel goodness means that as Christians, we are gospel people, that we obey God because of the gospel, we worship God because of the gospel, and that we don't have a religious burden on our heart to need to earn God's favor. Let's pray. Uh, I hope you're blessed by the um, internet address that we're bringing to you this morning and we're going to continue in worship so let's let's pray together.